we are right now as a church body going through 12 topics that we're calling the Dirty Dozen. Um, There are cultural topics that we have questions about and kind of wonder about. They're not theological questions like, is Jesus God? Um, There's a place for those, but these are more, hey, there are some issues in culture. What does Scripture say about that? If we want to be a community that says our lives are defined by um, an event that happened 2,000 years ago where God became a man, died for us, rose again, and now lives in us. If we're going to be defined by that, how does our life look like today in the culture we live? So that's kind of our premise. So we've looked at marijuana. Um, we've looked at sexuality. Last week, we looked at ISIS. And this week, we're looking at barefoot and pregnant. If you're wondering, what does that mean and where did you get that name? I'm going to explain that to you right now. You may have heard this before, but here's how we kind of got the name. We got it by um, about eight years ago. I started looking into kind of, you know, gender stuff and church and all those kind of questions. So I ordered a bunch of books. And one of the books I ordered, it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and biblical womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's a very thick book with like 0.7 font, and there are no illustrations. Like, I want an illustration at some point. Like, come on, just a picture. I don't even care if it's a cat, just anything at this point. But it's that kind of book, just, you know, it's a hard read. So I ordered it. Somehow, that book did not find its way into our mailbox but dropped on the ground. Now, because of where we live, our mailbox is in a line of 12 mailboxes. So this neighbor that we did not know very well at the time found the book, and he picks it up, recovering biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism. Who does this go to? So what he decided to do is he started going house to house. So he shows up at a house. He's like, bro, is this your book? Guy grabs the book. Recovering biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. No way, dude. No way. My wife would kill me. Get this book out of here. So he goes house to house. He comes to our house. Now to set it up, our house is unique because you come to the front door. There's a big window on our door. And when you look through that window, you see directly into our kitchen, all right? On top of that, we have a no-shoe policy at our house because we don't like the mud getting tracked in, so you take your shoes off, all right? So he comes up to the house. I wasn't there. My wife is in the kitchen. She's cooking something at the stove. She's not wearing shoes. She's barefoot. She has Elijah John, who's three months old, on her hip and three little girls running around. She, he knocks on the door. My wife goes, answers the door. He just says this, I found your husband's book right? (laughs) That's the way you want them. Barefoot and cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. What's really funny is for about a year after that, every time I'd see the dude on the road as he's driving by me and I'm driving by him, he'd be like, yeah, dude, you're doing it right, man. I don't know how you did that, but keep it up. So there is a stigma with the church, like where do women fit? Are they supposed to be barefoot and pregnant 
in the kitchen cooking. There's a stigma at the church on that. So right now there are big positions, and there are three of them. The first is what is called hierarchical. Hierarchical says this, men rule and women submit. Studies have found 50% of church members love this system. That's pretty funny. Come on, give it up. (laughs) That's position number one. Position number two, it's called complementarianism, but there is a, it's kind of wide, and there's a movement in complementarianism right now that's moving much closer to hierarchicalism. So I prefer partnership. And it's this, men and women are different, and we're not interchangeable. You just can't pull a guy out and just put a girl into that position. Like, we have certain design differences, and we celebrate those divine design differences because they're divinely designed, all right? And, and the church looks good when they partner together strengths and weaknesses, all right? So that's position number two. Position number three is over here. It's called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says this, that there's no difference when it comes to gender or ministry or position or any of that in the church, that none of that matters. And the magna opus for them is Galatians 3.28 that says this, now therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So they say, look it, that verse, the church, the New Testament, just eliminated any differences. We're all one. There's no gender difference. The problem with that is this. That text is dealing with salvation. And so if you really look at it, when a slave got saved, did he all of a sudden get set free? Oh, bro, you know, you're a Christian now, so you're set free. No, he, still be, he was still a slave or she was still a slave, right? When a Gentile got saved, did they become Jewish? No, they stayed Gentile and they had Gentile culture and they had to deal with Gentile culture. A Jew didn't become a, a Gentile to get saved. There's, all, there's none of that. It's saying all of us get saved the same way. I think there are better ways to argue for egalitarianism. I'll give you one example. So in the Old Testament, there was a mark that said you are part of the covenant of Yahweh. What was that mark? Circumcision, right? Who got circumcised? I hope you're not learning anything right now. Please, All right? Men only got circumcised, right? So you got circumcised men, eighth day when you're born, eight days you got circumcised. All right, that was half would be marked with that mark. In the New Testament, we're told circumcision means nothing, but there's a new mark that says you are identified with the body of Christ, with Jesus Christ. What is that mark in the New Testament? It's baptism. Who gets baptized? Everybody, right? So right there you have, there's a difference. The covenant in the Old Testament was, you know, male sign. Covenant in the New Testament is much more equal. So I think there's ways you can argue it that are better than Galatians. All right? So... What we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to look at some texts and the, the real controversial texts that are right now being debated, like what does this text mean when we're talking about 21st century America? What does this text mean? How does it define us as a church? We'll look at these texts, and then I'm going to try to balance them and then look at how we um, apply them to Edgewater, all right? So here are the texts. First one. Turn with me. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But 
I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So right there, we're introduced to this idea of headship. And the head of the wife is the husband. Hmm. Skip down a few verses to verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Oh, man. Chapter 14. I think this text, very important to pick it up in 33. Uh, because I think there was a chaotic nature in the church at that time. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 is trying to, trying to simmer down a little bit. You can read about that if you want to. I don't have the time to delve into these things. But it says this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. What does that mean? Women, you can't answer. <laughs> does that mean all the gals need to take sign language? Do they need to text when they get into church? I better text you from now on, husband. What does this mean? Right? These are the texts that people are arguing about. Which camp do we land in? Okay, last one. First Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. Okay, what do you think? Where's the door? I'm out of here. What in the world? Ray Steadman, who is like, he's this great preacher from yesteryear. I love him. He said on these texts, he said, what we're trying to decide is, are women fully human? (laughs) Who wears the pants in the family? I do, but she chooses them, right? Right, you might be the head, but she's the neck, and she turns you wherever she wants. So we have all these kind of sayings, and really what we're trying to do is, this is awkward, so let's try to avoid it. But the real question this text is begging us to answer is, what is a woman allowed to do in church? Is she allowed to come up here and pray? Is she allowed to lead a ministry? Is she allowed to lead worship? Can she read the Bible up here? Can she write a book on theology? Can she serve communion? Could she teach where a man might be present? Could she lead a committee that has oversight of something at a church? Could she be a missionary? Can she be an elder? Can she be a deacon? Those are the big questions. All those other things are just trying to get away from them. All right? So these texts are being used right now throughout our land to say, here's where we land in one of these camps. Here's where we land. So here's what I want to try to do. I want to try to balance these three texts 
with some other important texts because here's the law of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you study the Bible. It says this, you interpret the single with the whole. So you never take one verse and say, this is it. What you do is you say, okay, God gave us his word and it's a unified message. So we have a part of this unified message. How does it fit in the whole message? So you take all of scripture and you bring all of scripture to bear on this one scripture. And that has to fit. It has to fit in with what we know about the rest of the Bible, okay? So I'm gonna give you 10 points trying to say, look at all of scripture, then we'll talk about what it means and apply it for us, okay? So point number one is this. I'm gonna stereotype, but I think there is a place for stereotypes because they tell you kind of what the norm is in that idea, right? So get mad if if you want. I think they're helpful. Okay, here's my stereotype. Feminism says this. Men have messed up the world and women are here to save it. Okay? Chauvinism says this. Women are all messed up and men are here to save them. Okay? The Bible says this. Now you're both messed up and Jesus is here to save you. That's our platform. That's where we begin with. Okay? Both of us in the fall, Genesis 3, we'll talk about that more. Something happened in the curse and neither of us are right. We're all screwed up. And we need Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and scripture and community and people and iron sharpening iron. We need all of those components to help us stop being so messed up, okay? That's where we all start. So that's point number one. Point number two is this. Women inspired scripture. Do you know that? So you can look at um, Exodus 15. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. And Miriam, moved by God's spirit, just begins to sing. Her song is so inspired that it is recorded by God in Scripture for all eternity. That was perfect. Miriam, we're keeping that one. That was inspired by my spirit through you. And that song for all eternity is going to be studied by men and women alike. Okay? You can go forward to Judges. Deborah, another victory song. Deborah just busts out. She's a judge of Israel. She busts out in song, and that song is recorded and kept as scripture to be studied by men and women throughout history. Like, you know, New Testament. Mary, right? She meets Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John, and she busts into what's called her magnificent. And that is recorded in Luke chapter 2, kept, studied, encouraged millions and billions of Christians throughout history, all right? So women have inspired scripture. Number three. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, you have this. It says God creates mankind. He creates humanity. He creates humanity in his image. And the Bible says this. He created them male and female. And he said to them, here's his command, be fruitful and multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Rule over the earth. Was the rule of earth given to just the man or just the woman? Both. You guys are co-regents with me. We are going to rule this thing together, right? It's them. It's plural. So the first command before the curse, before the fall, is men and women together, united, ruling with God over creation, right? So that's number three. Number four, the Old Testament, you have leaders that are women. So you have in Judges 4 and 5, Deborah, she's a leader. Um, You have in 2 Kings chapter 22, this prophetess called 
Hulda. Uh, great name for a, a young lady. So if you're looking, pregnant, Hulda is a great name. She's a prophetess. We know that there were male prophets around because of scripture that they wrote. But Josiah, this absolutely godly king, he goes to Hulda, the prophetess, to find out what to do. Right? So she was gifted in such a way that Josiah said, I need to talk to her. She, she's got the answer for me. All right? Micah 4 6 names Miriam, the sister of Moses, as one of the leaders of Israel. So uses a term that's reserved for leaders. So you have leaders that are women. Right? Number five. The very first evangelists were, guess what? Women. They discovered the empty tomb. Okay, if you know this, back in history, 2,000 years ago, in that culture, a woman could not testify in court. Do you know why? Because women are crazy. can't trust them. That's why, right? So what does God say? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I'm going to use women to discover the most important event in history. It's going to be a woman. I mean, think about that for a second. God's saying, no, they're not crazy. Yes, you can trust them. They're not hysterical. Uh, you know, come on, it's okay. You can trust them. So you, ha- you have that. Number six, the inauguration of the church is very equal. I'll read the text for you. It's the very first message preached in the church. It's Acts chapter two. It says this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female, female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Very equal, men and women, both being given God's spirit to speak prophetically. All right? But we are busy today, aren't we? Glad to have you. Verse 7. We have a, or number 7, excuse me. We have an example in the Bible of a woman instructing a man. So you have in Acts chapter 18, this guy Apollos, who's a gifted orator, he's able to speak, but he doesn't know the gospel. So Priscilla, a woman, and her husband, Aquila, her name comes first. It's showing um, really importance. They grab Apollos and they instruct him in the way of the gospel, all right? So you have a woman being used to instruct a man. Number eight, you have a woman deacon in Romans chapter 16. So there's a woman, the, the, it's a feminized word for deacon that's used to explain her. So she is a deaconess in the city of Rome. In that same chapter, you have Phoebe lined out as a leader in the church. So interesting there. Um, number nine, Jesus Christ had tons of ladies in ministry. In fact, when there's this account of a lady coming and sitting at his feet and learning of him, that was the position of disciple to rabbi. Anybody know that story? Her name is Mary. Was she rebuked for that? No, Jesus commends her and says, she's chosen the best thing to do. So she is not rebuked for saying, I want to be a disciple and I want to learn of Jesus. She is, in fact, commended for that. All right, number 10, last one. I am convinced that in the Bible, there's one position that's held 
completely for man, men, and there's one position that's held completely for women. The male position is called elder in the Bible. There is no example in the New Testament of any female person being an elder. All the verb tenses, all the tenses, in fact, of the nouns are always male when it comes to elder. But there's this other role. It's called the enrolled widow. And we don't have it anymore, and I think it's wrong. But it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where it says this woman who's done all these great things, there's qualifications given to her. She's done all these things. She can sit in the office of enrolled widow. And it's a very, very important office. And I think we've lost it culturally over the last 1,800 years. We don't don't have it anymore. But there was a time, this is, men do this, and women do this, the rest you can partner on. But those two are kept exclusive. Now, why is that? Because we are different. Men and women are different. Physically, we're different, right? Men are stronger than women. Every time I say that, someone emails me a picture of like a chick with big guns. I'm like, okay, great. I'm just saying, you know, typically the man is stronger than woman. Yes, you can find some woman that can kick my butt. No doubt about it. I get that. Okay. I'm embarrassed of it. Whatever. All right. You can always find that one person. I'm not saying that. I'm saying generally men are stronger than women. Okay. Men have higher red blood cell counts than women. Like just it, down to our design, the core of our design, we're different. Emotionally, we're different. Here's how I explain it. Um, uh, I have two vehicles. Uh, one is a Power Stroke F-250 truck. The other is a 1966 Volkswagen bus, right? My Power Stroke diesel has 300 horsepower. My Volkswagen bus has three horsepower. <laughs> My diesel truck is beat up. It's tough. It's rugged. It's just, it is a truck, right? That's my truck. My Volkswagen bus is a beautiful classic that about one time a month gives me some trouble. (laughs) All right? (laughs) I know I shouldn't say those things. They're always causing me trouble. (laughs) But it's true about my bus, too. Which one's better? It depends on what I'm doing, right? If I'm going to the dump, give me my truck. If I'm going on a date, give me my bus. It's the same thing. God says, hey, I've designed you differently, right? There's books on that. A best-selling book was what? Men are from Medford and women are from Ashland. Like there's differences in who we are. And we should enjoy that. We shouldn't fight that, all right? So God says there's some, there's some things that you're going to do a little bit differently, and that's fine because we need it. And that, like some people say, well, it's environment. You know, environment, if you just raise kids where kids, boys played with dolls and girls played with guns, then everything would be fine. Okay, I have this study. I love it. They took these kids when they first learned to walk. And, and they're just learning to walk. And um, they had an obstacle in their path. The girls, the little girls, when they would learn to walk, they'd come to the obstacle. Guess what they would do? They'd walk around it. Like, mm, this thing's in my way. I'm going to walk around it. The little boys that come to that same obstacle, what would a little boy do? Try to go through it. Like, ah, and he'd fall over and bump his head and that kind of stuff, right? Just innately, there's a difference in us. If you're married, you know this. If you have kids, if your kid gets hurt, what happens? Who do they run to? Mom, why? Oh, let me kiss that. Oh, let me give you a blankie. Oh, come here. Let me put on a movie for you and get you a popsicle. And I'm going to Google what else I should be doing right now. What does a dad do? Rub it out, boy. 
but I can see my skull. Rub harder. You should have seen me when I was a boy, man. I wouldn't even cry when that happened to me, right? We're different and we need each other. And there's this partnership that becomes beautiful. But here's the problem with our uniqueness. In Genesis 3, sin cursed us. And you read that chapter, it's fantastic. I should have just spent my whole time in Genesis 3, but I really needed to make some practical applications for us. You see in Genesis 3, in the curse, listen, the way God designed masculinity and the way that God designed femininity gets, gets shifted, all right? So there are studies now, there's this great book, it was written like 20 years ago, and that found this, that men believe maturity is this. They believe it is independence and separation, that you become a man by going out and doing it on your own, like pioneer style. I'm going to go get 100 acres, build a log cabin, live by myself out there. Okay? Men believe, that's it. It's independence, separation. Right? Women, though, believe maturity is interdependence, community, and networks. All right? So that's the way we're designed. But here's the problem. You take masculinity and you curse it, this independence and this separation, you curse it, guess what happens? It moves too far and it becomes what I call Rambo syndrome. Where it's just, you know, you have men dominating women and hurting women and abusing women and, and taking all this kind of pride and I can do it on my own and will not let anybody help them. And there's no dependence and there's no community. So they move way over here and it's wrong, it's cursed. That happened in Genesis 3. But the same thing happens to the, to the beautiful thing of femininity, interdependence, and, and all that kind of stuff. If you curse that, it moves too far. How? I call it Cinderella syndrome, right? It's, I'm just looking for somebody to sweep me off my feet. Bring the glass slipper. I'm going to put it on. It fits me, and now I'm just a princess, and I'm all taken care of. And it's needy, and it's wrong, and it's dependent. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not femininity in the Bible. Read Proverbs 31. That woman's brilliant, I'm going to go make a real estate, real estate transaction. I'm going to buy some land. I'm going to sell it and make some money. That's not Cinderella. That's biblical femininity. So what happened to the curse was this. The way God designed us and the beauty that we're supposed to have, it gets cursed and it gets pushed out too far. And so that's why in the New Testament, there's all these safeguards on it. Like, hey, bring this thing back together. Read, Gen- read Ephesians 5. When you look at marriage, that chapter is saying, this thing that got out of control because of the curse, here's how you bring it back together. Mutual submission. And yes, women submit to their husbands, but husbands, you love like Christ loved the church. You cherish her. You take care of her just like you love yourself. You do that for your wife. When that happens, it's beautiful. There's a partnership. The the independence of the man and the interdependence of the woman, woman come together and something beautiful happens that's brilliant. It's right. Right? So we can never forget that. It's been cursed, and it's really the partnership, I believe, that middle ground that actually makes us what we're supposed to be. Okay, so that's the theology. What does that mean for us at Edgewater? It means this. Apart from the gender roles that are in the Bible, elder, enrolled widow, apart from those, we say, hey, women are able to, if they're gifted and qualified, do what God's called them to do. Apart from those roles that are fully saying those are for that gender, all right? So what does that mean? Okay, I'll give you some examples. We have at Edgewater a bunch of ministries, and they're doing really good. I don't want to act like there's one better than the other, but there's one ministry that I look at and I say, I love what you're doing. They call themselves Titus Chapter 2. And it's a group of ladies that lead it, have the vision for it, have been steering it. Every once in a while, they'll grab us and be like, what do you think about this? To get that, make sure that partnership is good. 
But they're, they're doing it. They are discipling ladies in a way that I say as men, we need to learn from that. We could do it as good as them because they're right now home running it every single day. Beautiful, brilliant, right? Here's another one. We started putting our money where our mouth is. So if we're really saying, hey, we want opportunity for, for young people, a year and a half ago, we started this intern program, should be called the discipleship program, where we said, you know what, young people, we want to grab you, young men, we want to grab you, we want to disciple you, we see you have a desire to know these things and to grow in uh, Jesus Christ, so we're going to grab you for a year and help you on that path, right? We're doing that for young men, why aren't we doing it for young ladies? If we're really saying, hey, we want to invest in this next generation, then we want to see, yeah, strong young men raised up, but we also want to see strong young ladies raised up. So here's what we decided. We put our money where our mouth is. We're starting a discipleship for young ladies, and it's kicking off in June. We've hired a lady to start running it. Uh, we're looking at a house right now to try to get a house where they can live at. We're saying, yeah, that's important. We need to, we need to be balanced in those things, right? I think there are times that the best voice may not be mine on something. So I'll give you an example. Uh, two Fridays ago, we had a pornography conference, and it was really supply and demand. You had two different speakers, supply and demand, right? Because pornography is not a victimless crime. And, and people that are watching something on a screen are eventually going to act on what they watch, and they will very often act that act out with a woman who's been trafficked. That's the way it works right now. That's the equation, right? So you, you got supply and demand there. So could I come up and talk about trafficked women? I suppose so. But why would I when we have Rebecca Bender, who was a trafficked woman, who is a miracle now, who has seen Jesus Christ redeem and take a really a shameful, scarred period of her time and turn it into something beautiful and wonderful? Why wouldn't we hear from her? So there are times you just say, that, that's the best voice for that, most qualified, All right? So, well, Matt doesn't, First Timothy 2 Verse 12 say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What about that? Okay. Once again, you take the whole of Scripture to interpret the one of Scripture. So when it says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, what does that mean? Well, look at the whole of Scripture. Do we have an example of a woman ever teaching a man? Absolutely. Acts chapter 18. Apollos by Priscilla, right? Do we ever have examples of women talking in church? Absolutely, 1 Corinthians 11. When you prophesy in church, ladies, do it this way, right? So you have examples of men teaching, men being taught by women. You have examples of women teaching or prophesying, God's revelation being spoken through them in church. So you have to take all this evidence and then you have to say, okay, then what is being said right here in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what I believe it says. There's a Greek conjunction in there. It's the Greek conjunction, aud. That Greek conjunction almost always is pairing two things that are related, right? These two things are joined together. It's really joining them as a unit. I am convinced 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 is saying, the woman cannot be the teaching and ruling person. Why? Because that is the role of an elder. If you look at the New Testament, if you boil it all down to a simple statement, an elder is somebody that rules and teaches. Both of those together. So what Paul is saying there is that that position is reserved for men. 
Just like in chapter 5, we'll say, talk about the position that's reserved for women. All right? right after he talks about that, what's chapter 3 in 1 Timothy? Elders. Here's why he would be saying, because elders are to do these things, apt to teach, doing all this stuff. All right? So th- that's what I believe. All right? so, so, I mean, honestly, if you took this, you know what? A woman can never teach a man. That means when a boy turns 18, he would say to his mom, I can't hear another thing from you because I am a man and I know everything and I cannot learn from you any longer. Now that does happen. And those boys, we visit them in jail very often. All right? We keep learning, no doubt about it. I mean, there's, balance it. It's a balance. And my final point is this. In the Bible, in the beginning, Genesis 1, I believe, lines out God's design. He says, I'm creating mankind. I am making them in my image. And they are going to be male and female. I believe God, if you would split his image-bearing capacity between the masculinity of men and the femininity of females, and that we, do, we cannot image God correctly without each other. Men cannot image God correctly by themselves. Women cannot image God correctly by themselves. The interdependence of God in the Trinity is, is modeled, if you would, by the femininity. The dependence or the independence of God doing all that he wants to do correctly is modeled correctly by men. So you, get the, the, you, get the, you only get the right image of God when men and women in cooperation and in partnership work in this beautiful thing that builds God's kingdom. And when it's done right, the world says, we want that. How you guys relate, how you work together, how you do what you're called to do is something of beauty, and we want some of that. That's when it's done right. If you look at history, how much problems have been caused in culture because men and women cannot get that balance right. So we're to be those that say, this is what works. This is how it's supposed to be. We complement each other. We know what we're gifted to do. We know how God has designed us differently. We look out for the danger of masculinity, which can push us way over here where we become abusers and tyrants. And we look out for the danger of femininity, which can push us over here to be needy and dependent, waiting for somebody to save us. We look out for those dangers. And when we pair together correctly, those dangers are removed. And it's beautiful. I am praying that Edgewater is full of really strong men and really strong women And because of the giftings and callings that God has put into each of us, we see the enemy of Grant's past, the dragon who wants to devour this next generation, pushed back. I think it only happens when we partner well in this beautiful thing called the church. Amen? If you have questions on this, and I know that you probably will, feel free to email me. It's a massive subject. I thought about doing this in two weeks. I might take the week after we're done with the Dirty Dozen and do it one more time because it's that big of a subject. And I think we've got to get it right to be those that properly image God and bring really the beauty of God into this community of grants path. So Father, I pray for women in here. Women who have been on the receiving end of the curse of Genesis 3 where men have become tyrants hurting, harming. 
I pray that you would right now speak to them and comfort them and heal them and let them know that's not real masculinity. That we are to love women, love our wives like Christ loved the church, self-sacrificing, nail-pierced servant leaders. That's what we're supposed to be. Never demanding women to submit, but leading in such a way that it's received correctly. I pray for men who don't understand what it means to be a man, who are living the cursed life, independent, separated, isolated, fodder for the enemy, Lord God. I pray that the body of Christ would bring that tendency back into balance of interdependency and community and fellowship, what we really, really want. It is not good for man to be alone. And yet we tend that way, Lord. Heal the men in here so that we're able to receive community and fellowship and one another in a way that builds the body of Christ. And may Edgewater, Lord, may the body of Christ in grants pass. May we be a space that gets back to Genesis 1, back back to Eden, back to being an colony of heaven on earth where men and women celebrate their strengths balance each other and brilliantly reflect your glory and your majesty so help us in that I pray and I pray this in Jesus name Amen